So today, as we get ready to get into the Word, I thought I, I don't, for those of you that are guests, this is nothing new to you, but uh, I don't usually sit at a, at a table here, but I just thought today we would start a conversation, because for the next three Sundays, uh, we're doing a series that we've been advertising called Q&A, Questions and Answers, and I've been taking some questions uh, for the last few Sundays from many of you. Uh, just questions about the Bible, maybe questions about, uh, you know, what does the Bible say about this or that, or what are, uh, you know, what's going to happen in this scenario, or why is this passage contradict that passage of, uh, of Scripture, and, uh, and so today we're starting a new series called Questions and Answers, and let me just say at the beginning that uh, my goal is not to uh, cover the ins and outs and details of every question because of most of these questions that I've read that you've asked and you guys asked some great questions. Uh, we could spend a whole week uh, just one sermon on one question and, and some of them we could probably do a series on one question and so uh, my, my intention is not to uh, thoroughly explain every angle of every argument because trust me I can get lost in my own head trying to do that. But I do want to thoroughly answer your questions and, uh, and here's, here's my hope uh, with each topic that I want to cover over the next several Sundays. Uh, I, I want to not share my opinion or my view about things as much as what I want to do is I want to elevate the authority of this book in our lives. That's really what I want to do. What I want you to see over the next uh, couple Sundays is how powerful, how awesome this word is. This word, we believe as a church, this word is infallible, it is inerrant, it is authoritative in our lives. And what that means is whenever we come to something in the word of God that we don't understand, that doesn't make sense, uh, that doesn't line up with, with our beliefs or with culture, we, we wrestle with it and we stay there and we deal with it and we let the word be unchanged and we are changed. The word doesn't change. Jesus said this, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So I want you to know at the beginning of this service, because you may come into this uh, moment with a different view than me about this book. You may look at it as motivational, as encouraging, as uh, somewhat historically accurate, but I see it as far more than that. Though it is all those things, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's absolute truth. And we could spend a whole Sunday just talking about those two words, absolute truth, because they hardly exist in our culture anymore. The mindset, and I understand maybe even in this room, some of you come in with the understanding and the mindset of, of what is true is based on my experience. And so when I make a statement and say it's fact, the culture says, well, it's true for you. But my experience tells me. And so what I want you to understand right out of the gate is... I'm coming from the basis of the authority of this book. Now, if you want to argue about the authority of the book, you're not going to be happy with the answers that I give you to the questions that were asked, because this is my authority uh, to answer your questions. So my hope is, is to exalt this book. Here's just a couple of verses to tell you how critically important this word is before we jump into any questions. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 or 5 verse 18, he said, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's a strong statement. 
He said everything that God's word says is going to happen is going to happen. There's another verse that I, I love this verse. It's so powerful in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the word of God says in verse 16, 2 Timothy 3. It says all scripture is God breathed. That means it was inspired by God. But it doesn't just mean it, it was inspired by God. That means it's still alive. That the breath of God is in the word of God. And that's a powerful statement in and of itself because what that means is my conviction today is that as I share the word of God with you, it's not just going to be me stating information to you. The word of God is breathing in your direction. The power of God is moving through the pages of his word. All scripture is God breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that, the next verse says, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God wants you thoroughly equipped this morning for everything that he's called you to do, for everything that he's called you to be. And how does he equip us? The word of God. You have no greater resource than this book. You ought to love the word of God this morning. If you ought to buy, if you got a Bible, you ought to just go ahead and hug it right now because we're going to love the word of God for the next couple Sundays. I want to share some of these questions with you today. Now, if this series bores you, it's kind of your fault because you ask the questions. So I'm just, gonna, I'm just throwing that out there before we get started. Here's one of the questions that was sent in. I thought this was a great question. What does the Bible say about burial and cremation? We've all been to funerals. We've all uh, experienced uh, services uh, done both ways with traditional burial and with cremation and and i know death is not a topic that a lot of people like to talk about but let me just encourage you to go ahead and whether you've asked this question or not lean into this conversation because here's what i've found in my experience when people start dealing with issues of their own mortality which oftentimes happens when somebody's sick when somebody's dying or when they're at uh, the church for a funeral or at the 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 graveside when people start dealing with issues of their own mortality they start asking questions they start wondering about some of these bigger issues of life and my experience has been that because we are believers because people know us to be followers of Christ and we have we have hope in the word of God they expect us to have an answer and so don't be surprised though you may not be a Sunday school teacher or even a kids ministry worker you may not have even signed up for nursery before because you're a Christian people may ask you for answers and I think this is an important uh, opportunity for us to be prepared to talk to people about the end of life so we're going to jump into this and uh, I just I want to tell you that uh, the Bible does not communicate and this isn't the question, but I'm getting to the question. The Bible does not communicate that it's a lack of faith to prepare for death. There's some people that actually think that way. They think to, to start making, uh, you know, funeral arrangements, to start, you know, buying burial plots or, or, or whatever. When they start doing that, they think it's like, a, it's like, a, like they're surrendering to defeat. And, and that it's somehow a lack of faith. But I, I don't believe that to be the case at all. In fact... I believe the very opposite is true. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 22, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. See, I believe when you make plans for when you're gone, that's just good stewardship. And if you've ever had everything put in your lap 
after someone passed away and they didn't make plans, then you understand what that weight feels like. It's good stewardship to make plans for when we're gone. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, look at this verse. Verse 14 says, now I am ready to visit you for the third time. This is Paul writing to the church. And I wonder if when he said this, if he wasn't thinking about that verse in Proverbs 13 about leaving an inheritance for your children, because he said to the church, I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So uh, this is not the question, and we'll get back to the question of cremation and burial, but let me just say, I think it's wise to plan for your estate. I think it's good stewardship of the blessings that God has given you in your life to make preparations for your departure. Because one thing we know for certain from Scripture, that day is coming for each and every one of us, and no one is guaranteed tomorrow. So if you want the answer to the question, burial versus cremation, is it okay for one, is the other okay? It's easy. The answer is in Leviticus 28, verse 10. Next question. No, I'm kidding. It's not that easy. (laughs) There's not even 28 chapters in Leviticus. I'm just, I'm making stuff up. Uh, It it can be tough. It can honestly be difficult for some people. Now, for some of you go, really? This is a question? But I want to show you why it's it's a struggle for some people uh, to wrap their minds around specifically the idea of, of creation when they've grown up with a specific tradition. The Bible tells us, um, a few specific verses about what's going to happen uh, after we die. But the emphasis of the Bible, and this is just a fact I want to just throw out there. Uh, the Bible does not give any specific burial instructions for Christians. There's no, there's no emphatic declaration of how you should go about uh, that process. No, nowhere in the Word of God. What the Bible does do is the Bible emphasizes the thing that is most important about preparation for our departure. And that verse is in John chapter 11. The Bible says, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever believes, can we all say believe? Whoever believes in me will never die. Here's the reality of of what determines our eternity. It has nothing to do with our plans for interment. It has everything to do with our faith in Jesus Christ. He said, if you believe, you will live and not die. The Bible says on the Romans road, in Romans chapter 10, many of you could quote this verse, that if you confess with your heart and believe with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no additional qualifications. So I just say that to emphasize the fact that regardless of how the funeral plays out or if there is a funeral, it has no impact on anyone's eternity. There's no specific instructions for how to handle burial of believers. I mean, the Bible talks, if you think about uh, Hebrews chapter 13, uh, gives descriptions of some of the martyrs of the faith, those first ones that were martyred. I mean, some of them were, uh, were burned alive at the stake. Uh, some of them were torn asunder by wild animals. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, people that have died in all, all types of different ways. And we know in, in history that there's been uh, Christians who were uh, just blown apart in, in explosions or in times of war or drowned at sea and catastrophes. And, 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 and so people can sometimes 
sometimes get worried because they just haven't thought through the idea that, wait, wait a minute, what's going to happen to my body if I'm supposed to have a resurrected body if I have it cremated? Well, God knows how to deal with all of those things. And there's, there's evidence all throughout Scripture of, of people that have died, and, and, and there's even missionaries that we have that are serving in countries that if they die on the mission field, their body is not allowed to leave that country unless it's cremated. And, and so it, there's all kinds of circumstances that, that, would, uh, that would make cremation uh, not only an option, but even a necessity. But still, some people struggle with it, and I'm going to tell you why, why the struggle is real. Because all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament... Uh, we see a pattern of burial. Uh, no emphatic instruction, but we see a pattern of burial all through the Bible, including Jesus himself, that was buried in a body-preserving fashion. So it's no surprise that in American culture, that's been our tradition. For the most part, we, we preserve the body. Uh, it's just a reminder to us that we have a nation that, uh, despite what we read in the headlines, still has some deep roots in Christendom. So traditionally, we have uh, practiced body-preserving burial. That's not the case all over the world, but it's been our understanding. But let me tell you again what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. These verses are so powerful. Verse 42 through 44. It says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So the Bible is clear that our bodies are going to rise again. That's the truth. Our bodies are going to rise again. doesn't matter uh, what condition they were in. When life ended, our bodies, according to Scripture, are going to rise again. Again, so you can have a strong personal conviction um, against cremation personally. Just, uh, you know, that's okay. But what we have to be careful of is that we don't impose some kind of legalism that's just not in the Bible on people uh, because there's no clear instruction on how burial should take place. And let me just say this same question uh, has come up in, in Christian conversation over the last several years with some other things that, that aren't even discussed in, Bi- in the Bible like uh, organ donating. Or donating your body to science. There's some people that they're hesitant to do anything like that because they're, they think, man, I can't, I can't give up my, my kidney, man. I'm going to need that in the resurrection. I'm going to have a bunch of people walking around in heaven with no organs. And there's people that have, have been, you know, concerned about those kind of things. And, and if you have a personal conviction that, that you, you know, you want to hold to, that's okay. But understand that, that God, God can handle all of that. And the promise of the word of God is that we will rise in the resurrection. The God who formed man from the dust of the earth can replace the organs that you donate. All right. Uh, he's God and we're not. And so I just want to encourage you uh, with, with this word. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. Let me give you another question. Here's another question we were asked. What does the Bible say about the rapture? Now, I think this is a great question. I put these two together on purpose because we're still on the same topic. What does the Bible say about the rapture? And, you know, the truth is there was a reason that, that at granddaddy's funeral we, we dressed him up in his best Sunday suit. 
There was a reason that we had his old King James Bible tucked under his, his hands. And, and the reason was because when we put him in that coffin and when we laid him to rest in that cemetery, we did it with hope and anticipation that we'll see him again. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the air. And so shall we forever be with the Lord. There was an expectation when we had that funeral service. That that though his spirit is in the presence of Jesus, his body is anticipating a resurrection. And so we dressed him up nice and we gave him his Bible. And it was a statement, it was a testimony as to say that this body... He's coming up out of this grave. And that's a powerful testimony. And we believe in the resurrection of both the living and of the dead. So I want to talk a little bit about the rapture. You know, the Bible in the New Testament, just the New Testament alone, there are over 300 references to the coming of the Lord. That's about one reference every 26 verses. How many of you would say that's pretty important? About one in every 26 verses in the New Testament speaks about the Lord coming again. He's coming again. The last thing that happened when Jesus was leaving the earth, after his 33 years of ministry, after his death on the cross, his bodily resurrection, he's, the last thing that happens, he's ascending. And here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 1. The beginning of the church, Acts chapter 1 verse 9 says, After he had said these things to them, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Look at the next verse. It says, They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here? Looking into the sky, this same Jesus. Can we all say those three words together? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way. Can we all say the same way? The same way that you have seen him go to heaven. You know what that means? That means he's coming back literally. That means he's coming back physically. That means he's coming back visibly. This same Jesus, the way he ascended, he's going to come again in the clouds of glory. We can anticipate that. You know, as as an assembly of God church, we have uh, what we call 16 fundamental truths. These are Bible doctrines that that are non-negotiable. We we hold true to these things. And and you can read all 16 of them on uh, our church website if you say, what's the the things that define the assemblies of God as a fellowship? But four of those 16 are what we call cardinal doctrines. And and the fourth one deals with this very thing. It's called the blessed hope. Or if you're old school, you say the blessed hope. Depending on what translation of the Bible, you know. But I want to read it to you. In fact, I want to show it to you. This This is our doctrinal statement about the blessed hope. It says, we believe in the blessed hope. I think you guys have that somewhere back there. We believe in the blessed hope. There it is. When Jesus raptures his church prior to his return to the earth. That's the second coming. And that's where some confusion about the rapture lies. There's some scriptures that prophesy Jesus coming in the rapture to take the church. That's the scripture I quoted earlier, 1 Corinthians 15. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. Jesus' feet are never even going to touch down on the earth. He's just going to call with a shout and the trumpet call of God. And we're on our way. 
But the Bible also speaks of the second coming of the Lord when his feet will touch down in Jerusalem and he will, he will rule and reign and we're going to reign with him. But this says, at this future moment in time, all believers who have died will rise from their graves and will meet the Lord in the air. And Christians who are alive will be caught up with them to be with the Lord forever. It's called the blessed hope. That's, that's why Paul could say, we don't sorrow like those who have no hope. Oh, we sorrow. We cry at funerals too. But he knew and we know to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And that this day is coming. Paul writes, it's coming in the twinkling of an eye. It'll come as a surprise to many. The rapture of the church, we believe, is imminent. It's imminent. And so, I want to give a verse to you. This is maybe, the, this is the best. I would say the best verse to describe the rapture. If you want to say, where's the one verse, the go-to verse that I need to know? This is the one I need to be able to pull out if somebody asks me a question about the rapture. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can look at it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. It's the most direct and the most clear teaching about the rapture in all the New Testament. And here's what it says. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Look at this next verse. He says, after that, we who are still alive and are left. Did you notice Paul included himself? We who are still alive. You know, Paul lived his whole life expecting that he was going to rapture. He lived his whole life looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. He thought he was going. And that was the, the heart of the New Testament church. They lived their life with an urgency that Jesus is coming. He might come today. If you take away the conviction, the blessed hope of the rapture, the church shifts into neutral we get complacent. We start saying, there's plenty of time. There's always tomorrow. Maybe we'll do something next year. But when we live with the urgency that the New Testament church had, we know we've got to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because no man is guaranteed tomorrow. And that's what they believed. And Paul expected, I'm going to be raptured out of here. Now, for those that have already died, the good news is they're going to be raptured with us. They're going to go first. But we who are alive and remain, he said, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we be with the Lord forever. That, that phrase, caught up, he said they're going to be caught up. That's, that's where we uh, get the word rapture. The word rapture is actually not in the Bible. So if that's the argument, you know, somebody says, well, I don't think there's a rapture. I couldn't find the word rapture in the Bible. It's because it's not in the Bible. But neither is the word Bible. So... Or Trinity. So we have these words to define something that we know to be true based off the teaching of Scripture. And so the word rapture is not in the Bible, but it's, it's a catching away. It's the same word that was used in Acts 8 after Philip had, had baptized the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And then the Bible says he was called away. He was translated to another place. He was called away. And so we see that in the Word of God. I want to get to another question here, but uh, 
there's a lot we could say. There's a lot we could say about the rapture and what it's going to be like in that day. Here, here's what I, I would encourage you uh, with. The, the Bible says that the return of Christ is imminent. Jesus said it'll be like it was in the day of Noah. When people were marrying and being given in marriage, eating and drinking. And, and suddenly it came. Suddenly it happened. It will catch people off guard. And, and let me just say that's not a, that's not a fear-based statement. I want to communicate that this morning in the same way the Bible communicates it. When the Bible talks about the rapture of the church, it's always a faith-based statement, not a fear-based statement. It's not saying you better act right, Jesus could come tonight. No, in fact, when, when Paul was encouraging the Thessalonian church, he was writing to them about the coming of the Lord. He was encouraging them uh, with the fact that they were going to see their loved ones again. The Thessalonians were afraid because they thought people who had died missed the rapture. That, that, was, that was their concern. They died and, and Jesus hasn't come yet and they've missed the rapture. And so the question uh, that, that he's responding to is, is really very similar to some of the questions that I'm answering today. Now let me give you another question because this one's really important. Somebody wrote this question in and... Uh, I prayed about this one a lot, but it says, what does the Bible say about shaming your pastor for being a Dallas Cowboys fan? I'm going to tell you, I got, I got a word from God. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> that question really was in there. You're going to have to work out your salvation with prayer <laughs> and supplication. That's all I'm going to say about that. But I, I, I'm going to give you a verse because you asked the question. Here it is. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. <laughs> And we have come to worship him. So, NFC East. I couldn't find a verse where any eagles inspired worship. But, you know, I, I don't know. Certainly nothing in here about the Redskins. You can, you can cheer for whoever you want to. But I will give you one more verse. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. <laughs> so if you want joy, you know, you just get out of that whatever you want to get out of it. <laughs> All right, let me, let, me, let me answer one more question this morning. Serious question. Great question. Will we recognize our family in heaven? Will we recognize them as our family in heaven. Let me just tell you this morning, one of the greatest hopes, one of the greatest promises that we have as the people of God is the reality that one day we will see our loved ones again. One of these days, those that, that, have, uh, that have preceded us in death, we're going to have the opportunity to be with them again. 
but, but let me just dig a little deeper, because how do we know that? I mean, is that just like some platitude that Christians say to each other as, as a consolation in a time of grieving? Or is it actually a promise in God's word that we can cling to? Is there actual evidence that says, you know what, we're going to know each other when we get into heaven? And, and I just want to emphasize a part of the, the verse that I was talking about a moment ago in 1 Thessalonians. Because again, Paul was writing to people who were grieving the departure of those who had died in the faith. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read verse 16 and 17 earlier. But I want to give the context a little bit. So back up to verse 13. Paul says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep in death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Listen to this. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So then he starts talking about the rapture saying when we get there, they'll be there. And that's the context of, of what he was saying. He wasn't just trying to say the rapture is real. What he was saying is that you can take consolation in the fact that those who you're grieving for, those who you're worried about, when you see Jesus face to face, you'll see them face to face as well. And here's what he says to him at the last part of that little text in verse 18. He's, in fact, let me go back to verse 17 one more time. We've already read it, but let me emphasize a couple of words. He says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. That's the word for rapture. They'll be caught up together with them. You see that? Talking about those who have died. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the comfort is we're going to be with Jesus. But the other caveat is that we're going to be with them with Jesus. And that's why in the next verse he says, Therefore encourage one another with these words because they were discouraged about it. he said you can encourage one another with these words we're going to be together now let me ask this question because the second part of the question was will we will we see our family in heaven will we know them as our family what kind of comfort and encouragement would it be if when we got there together we didn't know each other we didn't have relationship. We didn't have identity. We didn't have any, uh, you know, anything that defined us, that we were just you know, spirit beings. What, what comfort would there be in that? But in fact, the Old Testament tells us that when a person died, the phrase that the Old Testament uses about Abraham, about uh, Moses, about many other people, says, and he was gathered to his people. So the theology of the Old Testament is that when you die, you're going to be gathered to your people. And then there's a story, and I really wanted to get to this today, and I hope it'll bring uh, comfort and healing to, to some hearts that may have questions about what, what is it going to be like in heaven? Are we going to know the people that, that we loved here? Uh, are we going to know them for who they really were? There's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and uh, you don't have to turn to it, but uh, the story plays out that, that King David had a newborn son who had fallen ill. And the Bible says that he fasted and he prayed and he laid on the ground and he asked God to spare that child's life. For seven days, he just laid on the ground, wouldn't eat anything. And then the child died. And the servants didn't want to come to David and tell him because 
you know, they, they, they thought the way he's been acting, boy, he'll just be overcome with grief when this moment comes. But he saw them whispering and he asked them, he said, the child's dead, isn't he? And they said, yeah, the child's dead. And then David did something incredible. It says, David got up in 2 Samuel 12. He got up. He, he took a nice long hot bath. He cleaned himself up, the Bible says. He put on new clothes and he went and he got him something to eat. And the, the servants were astounded. They said, why are you acting this way? When you were, you were on the ground for seven days, and, and now that the real grief has set in, why are you acting this way? And, and David said something in that, in that story that I just think is, is so, so very powerful. And I just want to read his answer. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22 to 23. He answered them, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. There's many of you that have grieved the loss of loved ones, maybe even grieved the loss, the loss of a child. And I want, I want to encourage you with the words that David took comfort in. David said, here's where my hope is. This is the reason that, as tragic as this is, I cleaned myself up, put on some new clothes, got myself something to eat, and I'm ready to face the day. The reason that I have hope is because I will see him. Not one day in the sweet by and by, we'll sit at the feet of Jesus. No, he said, I will see him. Not some spirit being, I'll see my son. I'll know his face. I'll see his identity. We'll have fellowship together forever and ever in eternity. And that was the consolation and the comfort that, that David received in that moment. He said, I will go to him. He, he won't come to me, but I will go to him. And I want to encourage you with this promise that encouraged David that there's going to come a day in the sweet by and by we used to sing that not only will we see Jesus face to face, but all those who have died in Christ, all those who have gone before, even those innocent lost children that we never got to really know, the hope that we have, the blessed hope, is that we'll be face to face together again. We'll see him. We could go on and on with evidence through the word of God of how true that is. Matthew 17, Jesus took the disciples, Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus, his clothes began to glow white and his face shined like the sun. He was transfigured before them. And the Bible says Moses and Elijah showed up. Even though they had, you know, Moses had died centuries before and Elijah had been raptured in the Old Testament away to Jesus. Yet the Bible says that they were there in bodily form. And not only that, but Matthew 17 verse 4 indicates that the disciples knew them. And they talked to them. They recognized them as Moses and Elijah. So here's how cool the promise is. Not only are we going to get to heaven and we're going to see people that we loved, that we lost, that we longed to be with, and we're going to know them, but we're also going to see people that we never knew in this life. And we're going to know them. You're going to see Moses and be like, hey, Mo. Samson, you barely got in, didn't you? We're going to know them. We're going to know their story. We're going to have relationship on a level like you can't even fathom in this life. And here's why, here's why some people struggle with the question, will I know my loved ones in heaven? Will I know them as 
my loved ones. I'm, I'm going I'm to get to the verse that really begs the question. Because in Matthew chapter 22, there's a scripture that has caused a lot of people to wonder about what the relational dynamic of heaven will be. And it's because there were some religious teachers, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, and they were trying to trap Jesus. So they said, here's the scenario, Jesus. There was a man who was married, and before his wife could conceive, he died. And the law of Moses says that his brother should, should uh, take her as his wife to carry on the family line. But before they could conceive, he died. So his younger brother married her, and then he died. There were seven brothers, Jesus. All of them died. So who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? And they were trying to trap Jesus. They, were, they didn't believe in a resurrection. And so they were trying to, to manipulate the situation and, and to trap him. And, and Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 22 is a powerful response, a perfect response. And yet it has also caused a lot of people to ask questions about what the relational dynamics will be in heaven. Here's what he said. I'm going to get right to it. Matthew chapter 22. Down in verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And what he was really saying is, it's, it's more important than you getting the answers to all the questions you have. And I know I'm not answering everybody's questions today. But more important than you getting the answers to these questions you're throwing out is that you have a revelation of the power of God. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. He was saying, you have missed the boat. You've missed the forest for the tree. There's a bigger reality at stake. And, and at some point, we have to do that with our questions. We have to kind of push them back across the table and say, God, I may never figure all this out. But I don't want to miss out on your power. And so that's the main point. But then he says, at the resurrection in verse 30, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. But they will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, you have not read about what God said to you. And then he goes on to emphasize the resurrection. Let me just stop and say that's the verse right there. When Jesus said, you'll not be married or given in marriage, people go, wait, hold up. You're saying... Our relationships are not going to be the same when we get into heaven. And let me just say, we'll, we'll kind of land the plane here. But let me just say this morning that I, I can't fully explain all the relational dynamics of heaven any more than someone in the Old Testament could explain to you the glory of the new covenant, of everything that Jesus would do, that he would purchase. All they understood was the system that they were in. All I can fully understand is the system that I'm in. The relational dynamics that you and I have. And and here's the heart issue for most of us. I can't imagine enjoying heaven outside of the covenant relationship that I have with my wife. Because it's the best relationship I have. And it probably should be that way. We should struggle to think about enjoying heaven without the the understanding of, of eternal marital bliss. Because God wants us to have a healthy marriage. And the reality is this. Marriage is the greatest illustration we have in the earth of what our relationship with God is like. All of the story of of eternity past, as far as we know, it begins with a picture of a wedding. When God created woman and brought her to the man. He, He was the first father of the bride. 
He brought her to him and the two became one flesh. And as far as we know, the last picture that we see at the end of life is, is a marriage supper. Where the Bible says that God will bring the church as the bride to be united to Christ, the, the groom. And we will all sit around the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's not a better picture, a more significant picture in all the Bible of what our relationships will be like in heaven than marriage. But let me just say this about marriage. It's a covenant till death do us part. It's for all of life, but it's momentary. It's momentary in the sense that you may have a loved one, or maybe you're even here today, and you were married, and you were faithful, and you loved God, and you loved your spouse, but they died, and you were widowed. And then you married again, and God brought someone into your life, and, and, and you loved God, and you loved them. You don't have to worry about being a polygamist when you get to heaven. It's not going to be the reality. You're not going to have to pick one when you get there. The relationships will be different. But for us, with our finite understanding, we look at it and go, oh. And the reason we do that is because marriage is the greatest illustration that we have in the earth of what a covenant relationship looks like. So we ought to long for it, but it's a shadow. And the best way I can describe it is to look at David. The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. He would say things like, oh God, how I love your law. He loved God. He worshiped God. But he lived in an old covenant. He had no idea what it was to have a savior who would ransom uh, his life by paying the penalty for his sins on the cross. He had no idea what it was like to be saved by grace through faith. He had to make sacrifices. And yet he was so in love radically with Jesus. But he looked at the cross future today we stand in the house of god and we look at the cross and the work of redemption past and we look back on it and we say how amazing and how awesome it is but for us to understand the relationships of heaven we look at it like david did in the old testament we look at it future and we go man i, I think it's going to be great but i just love what god's doing i love this so much but one of these days we're going to be on the other side and we're going to be in eternity and we're going to be in heaven and we're going to look back on marriage and as great and as glorious as a Christian marriage is, we're going to see that the shadow is far outweighed by the substance. The dynamic of the relationships in heaven will not in any way be less significant than the relationships that we have in the earth. The reality is we're going to have such deeper covenantal communion with one another and with Christ. That we're going to look back on the glory of marriage and say, wow, the glory is fading. As awesome as that was, it pales in comparison to the reality and the dynamic that we're experiencing here together. And, and just to be honest with you, just to be transparent, I can't fully wrap my heart around that. Because all I know is the beautiful shadow of marriage. And I want it to last forever. And that relationship will last forever. And yet Jesus says it'll be different. But you can promise it'll be better. And so we, we, we look at these questions and we look with anticipation towards what God wants to do. And the hope in my heart, as, I, if I, as I've tackled a couple questions about the grave and the rapture and 
what heaven will be like. The hope in my heart, my prayer this week, is that I haven't said anything that would in any way diminish the glory of what is to come. Because the truth is, and I'm just being honest with you, there's no way that I could articulate the glory of heaven. There's no way that I could say it well enough that you would get a good vision of what it is. So the danger is when we begin to talk about things unseen, you may have such a wild and vivid imagination that I actually put a filtered lens over your hope. That's not the intention of this message today, and it's not the intention of the Word of God. At some point, we jump off understanding and we step over into the realm of faith. And we look at the character of God and we know, and we know that His plan and what He is doing, what He is preparing for us is so much, so much greater, so much more glorious than anything that we could think or ask or even imagine. It's going to be incredible. So all the questions that I, I tackled today have to deal with the end of life. And preparing for those things and what happens after we die. And that didn't surprise me in the least that I would get questions like that. Because the truth is, those are serious questions. And so I want to pray for us today at the end of this message. And, and you may be here today and, and you've got questions about the end of life. And what happens when I die? How do I know if I'm going to heaven? How can I be sure uh, that, that I'm going to go to heaven? I don't, I don't know what your question is, but, but here's what the Bible says to us. Here's how, we're to, here's how we're to respond to the authority of this book and to God's self-disclosing revelation of himself. Proverbs chapter 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. But in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. He'll make it straight. That means he'll give you enough revelation, enough insight, enough understanding to get right where you need to go, right when you need to get there. God is not toying with the people of God. He's not hiding. A lot of times we think he's hiding because we have a hard time seeking him, but the truth is God is self-disclosing. He's a revealer of himself. That's why he gave us this book. That's why he sent his son Jesus, so we could see exactly what he's like, so we could know his nature and his love. So if you're here today and you've got questions in your heart, I want to ask you for just a moment to put the questions in another place, in the back of your mind, and to step into a place of faith and just say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you today. If you have uncertainty about your future, the Bible is very clear. Jesus made it clear. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. It's not multiple choice. It's very clear. But we get there by faith, by faith. So I want to pray for you. Would you bow your head with me all over this room? Let's close our eyes just so we can focus our minds on, on the spirit of the Lord right now. Jesus, we thank you for your word. The Bible says in John 1, the word became flesh. That's, that's what we celebrate as the people of God. Post-Calvary, we look back with gratitude that the word of God became flesh. That you dwelt among us. God, thank you today that your word is God-breathed. It's speaking life right now to our hearts, to the souls of men. Speaking life to us. You're calling us by your spirit. You're drawing us by your Holy Spirit. Not to intellectualism, but to faith. 
not to a lack of intellectualism either, not to just walking around with our head in the clouds. And, no, God, you invite us in. You invite us to interrogate the word, to study the word, to ask the tough questions because your word stands alone. It's authoritative. It's absolute truth. And when heaven and earth is passed away, this word will be alive. And God, today we bow our knee to the truth of this word that exalts Jesus as the son of the most high God. The truth of this word that says there is only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. So God, all of our questions, all of our, all of our fears, all of our doubts, we place them aside right now and we bow our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize your sovereignty over us. So Lord God, I pray right now today for the person who has, who has hesitated to put faith in Jesus, that right now would be a stepping across the line moment for them. That they would believe and not doubt. That they would do exactly what we read in Romans 10. Believe in their heart, confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and they shall be saved. If that's you today and you need to just put your faith in Jesus to be your hope for eternity, right now, where you're sitting, make an altar right there while your head's bowed, while your hands are folded in your lap, just begin with your own heart and in your own mouth. Begin to confess, Jesus, I accept you as Lord. Jesus, I receive you as the only plan of salvation, the only forgiver of my sins, the only one who can wash me clean, the only one who can make me righteous and acceptable in the eyes of a holy God. Jesus, I come to you by faith right now. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to make me clean, to make me, make me a child of God with a place in your family. God, I come by faith, and I receive your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Can we just stand today, and one more time, can we just give God praise for his goodness? Give God praise for his word. Lord, we thank you today.